Hello, I'm Matt Toback, and welcome to Grafana's Big Tent, the podcast all about people, community, tools, and tech around observability. I'm here with Tom Wilkie. Hi, Tom. Hi, Matt. How's it going? Tom, I haven't seen you this year. How are you? Uh, well, it is only, uh, what, day four so far of this year, so... Well, every every other year, I, we always celebrate, right? Just 10 a.m. the next morning with some coffee? Just, just you and me, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, it's, it's, a bit early for, uh, it's a bit early for this classic banter, Matt. I'm sorry. Well, do you have any big goals for 2022, personally? To still be standing at the end? Oh. To maybe see, see a few more people in person would be nice. Oh, that'd be nice. Yeah. What about yourself? Well, I got a 3D printer, and I'm hoping to print something. Ah, print more 3D printers. Yeah, print, right. And it's the year of 3D printers. On the desktop. It's the year of 3D printers on the desktop, yeah. Indeed, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, today we're talking about continuous profiling, and we're joined by Frederick Bronchik, co-founder and CEO of Polar Signals. Hello, Frederick. Hey, thank you for having me. Ah, it's so nice to talk to you. So I think we're going to go a very high-level and low-level view of continuous profiling and just kind of get a handle on what that is. But I guess, yeah, maybe start with just a little bit of intro and background about yourself before we jump in. Yeah, so I, I think the where everything gets interesting about continuous profiling is when I initially joined uh, CarOS as one of the first people here in the Berlin office. And I pretty much immediately started working on uh, Prometheus. And that's actually how I uh, ended up meeting Tom as well. And yeah, so basically everything in the intersection of Kubernetes and Prometheus was kind of my my area of expertise and everything that I uh, had been working on uh, at the time. And as I said, everything in that intersection was kind of what I was doing. And the reason why we were doing that at, as CoreOS was, if, you, uh, if you're familiar with CoreOS, our mission was to secure the internet, right? And uh, the big thing that Chorus was trying to tackle was automatic updates. And why Prometheus was so important in that was that we needed to know whether things were you know, working d- before, during, and after an upgrade, um, and then potentially rollback updates or stuff like that, right? You wrote the, uh, you wrote the Prometheus operator, didn't you, Frederick? That's right. That's right. Oh, wow. I mean, co-authored, but yeah, uh, one of the two original authors, yes. And I, I'm actually still the maintainer of the Kubernetes integration in Prometheus uh, to this day. Um, and uh, until recently, I was also tech lead for all things instrumentation in Kubernetes. So really, everything in that intersection, I've you know either I've created the tools or I've at least left my fingerprints on them. Frederick, what was your before Prometheus and before Kubernetes? What did you find interesting? Because I, I always feel like there's this before and after, particularly with Prometheus maintainers, where the the world opened up and it was all different. <laughs> but where were, where were you BP? Yeah, this is uh, that's a that's a great question actually. So uh, I've always been into infrastructure. So like when I was 15, I actually started my my first company, which was got just like a consultancy you could you could, you could call it. Um, and I you know uh, young 15 year old, I thought I was gonna. Uh, you know, solve big problems and stuff. But every time I wanted to solve something, I always found myself really frustrated with infrastructure tools. And so (laughs) I inevitably always ended up working on infrastructure tools. And in like, let's say the first half of my career, I actually um, focused a lot of my energy on like security things. And I I worked in security research, like threat detection, things like that, a a bit of uh, key management services. So yeah, actually that was like that past was actually what initially caught my attention about CoreOS because of the securing the internet, right? But um, at the time, 
Prometheus was super new and Coros had just kind of pivoted into the Kubernetes direction. And, you know, I felt like however I could get my foot in the door was how I was going to get into that company. And it was a problem set that I was very interested in regardless. It was infrastructure nonetheless, right? So that's kind of how I got uh, into that. And yeah, I mean, Prometheus and observability ultimately was what made me stick around. Very cool, very cool. How did you go from Prometheus to profiling then? Yeah, that's a that's a great question as well. So end of 2018, um, Chorus had been acquired by Red Hat at this point. Um, and I was already at the end at Chorus. I was kind of leading all things observability within CarOS. And Red Hat didn't really have a, a strong observability team. So I was kind of tasked with leading that for, for OpenShift then. And that's essentially what I did. And I uh, kind of started to become the architect for all things observability at Red Hat. And I I, I don't know, I think I, I just read this paper by Google. Um, I think that basically every continuous profiling project or product is somewhat uh, inspired by uh, the Google white profiling paper, where Google kind of described how by always profiling absolutely everything in their infrastructure, they actually have the knowledge to do something about resource usages, right? And more, more importantly, they can actually understand what would be the biggest wins. And Google described in this paper that they were consistently able to cut down on infrastructure costs every quarter using this. Um, and from, from some other Googlers, I, I heard that like some of the numbers were even like multiple percentage points every quarter, right? So. There were kind of multiple things that got me super interested in this. First and foremost was like, I wanted this tool, right? At this time, there was really nothing out there that did this. And I wanted this because I was working on these super performance sensitive pieces of software, Prometheus and Kubernetes. Um, and I just felt like I, I could have used this. Tom, you can probably even relate to like Prometheus performance problems, right? Like just around when Prometheus 2 got released, it was so, so performance sensitive. We had to be really careful about all the changes we did in, in the storage. And if we had had this type of software, um, I think we would have had a much better time back then. I think it over time still stabilized, but I think it would have been really useful. I remember, was it 2019, Frederick? You and I gave a keynote at, um, at KubeCon and you predicted the rise of continuous profiling, I think. I think back then. So that's right. Are you just kind of on a mission to fulfill your own uh, predictions? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it's like the, it's like they say: if you want to predict the future, you got to build it yourself, right? <laughs> um, I think maybe this is a, a, a case of that. But yeah, essentially, um, when I after I read that paper, I felt like we're lucky you didn't predict something diabolical. <laughs> that's next. There's always time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> After I read that paper, you know, I other than you know wanting a tool like that, I also felt like because of my experience with Prometheus, I felt like I was in the position to build this tool. Um, like I had worked with uh, a lot of data over time, so I put together this uh, like really like barely compiling, barely working uh, proof of concept that I also very creatively called Conprof, you know, continuous profiling. And yeah, I, I shared that as part of our predictions uh, for what's to come for observability in 2019. And yeah, 
I I guess you know in 2020 when the Corona uh, pandemic hit, I think just just like there's still I think what people call the the great resignations or <laughs> I, I for, forget what the yeah. right word is right, but I, I feel like I was in the same situation where I feel I I saw this opportunity and this like gap in the market and like at the time when I decided to quit Red Hat, there there wasn't really any company like solely focused on this. I think there was maybe Google offering um, sort of a tool for this um, in this space, but really it was very open still. And so I, I felt like there was an opportunity here. And so I started the company Polar Signals so to kind of make it my full-time job. Where does it fit? And this is my my lack of understanding, but where does it fit in sort of like when someone would start to to instrument continuous profiling what what is something that they would probably do just before and then what is the thing they would do after like as far as like the life cycle of a team yeah that, that's a great question so uh, i think the the evolution is essentially um or the the one example that people always understand really easily is previously we did like on-demand profiling right let's say um you know something that or you, you you've seen an increase in resource let's say cpu usage um, and you do take a one-time profile to try um, and figure out what's using more resources, right? So like running a trace route, right? And you're like, okay, I'm point in time. I'm going to go see what's happening. Yeah, exactly. Um, and continuous profiling is essentially doing this all the time, not just at this particular one point in time. And I think it's also it's always helpful to understand what CPU profiles actually are. And there are a couple of different different types, but... Essentially, the ones that we concern ourselves with are sampling profiles. And what this means is that we just, let's say, 100 times per second, look at the, the current stack trace of the program. And based on the stack traces that we're observing, we can statistically infer how much time was spent in these functions because we have the stack traces, right? And that's really all that CPU profiling is, just the aggregation of the uh, stack traces that we've observed over time. And so doing this all the time, now that we kind of understand this, doing this all the time also starts to make sense, right? Because what our program executes is not always the same thing. Uh, it depends on user input. It depends on probably an infinite amount of variables, right? And so always doing this is, is kind of the equivalent of going from like Nagios checks that we do individually to like Prometheus monitoring, where we always monitor this as time series over time, right? I, I find that this is often a, a good analogy. And this allows us to do a whole lot of really interesting analysis on this type of data. Because we have all of this data over time, now we can compare the entire lifetime of a version of a process to our new rolled out version, for example. Or we can compare two different points in time Finally, we can answer this question. And the first time we implemented this and were able to start using this, we were just so mesmerized that we were just clicking around in the web interface, which is that we can truly understand what was different at this point in time with our process versus this point in time. So like, let's say a CPU spike or a memory spike, we can actually down to the line number, understand what was different in our processes, what was being executed versus what was not being executed. So this is super, super powerful. And it's essentially an extension to all the other already useful um, observability tools that we have, but it shines a different light, 
a different aspect of our running programs. What kind of overheads are entailed if you're if you're constantly kind of dumping the the stack of the of the running application? That's that's a great question, and it's uh, maybe the number one question that we get <laughs> um, when when, uh, when we have people interested in this. And uh, I'll I'll uh, kind of talk a little bit more before I uh, uh, concretely answer that. But essentially, uh, we understood that this was going to be a really big concern by people because like people already do metrics, people already do logging, people already do tracing, and people are already concerned with the overhead that that has. Mm. And profiling was traditionally often looked at as a heavy operation. Mm. Now, sampling profiling was the first kind of, let's call it innovation that helps with this because we can adjust the sampling rate, right? We can look 100 times per second at our process. We can look 50 times per second at our process. and that of course changes the the overhead but ultimately the actually the biggest reduction in overhead that we were able to gain was by kind of fundamentally changing the way that we're obtaining the data and today we're doing this using ebpf so kind of before ebpf the canonical set of tools on a linux machine that you would use is the perf subsystem in linux um, and this is a great set of tools but um, as with so many tools, it does so much more than we need. And as a matter of fact, before we went into eBPF, uh, we actually did a proof of concept just using perf. But once we started using eBPF and really only captured the data that we needed um, in kernel space, and then only every 10 seconds essentially exporting it from kernel space, that's where we saw kind of like an almost an order of magnitude reduction in, in overhead. So. We're, we're seeing less than a percent um, of overhead in CPU usage uh, while, you know, being able to easily reduce most most companies that we work with are easily able to reduce somewhere between 10 to 30 percent of CPU time. So it's almost always a win that we've experienced. Is this something that any pretty much any team could take advantage of? Or is this something that like there's kind of, you know, there's there's specialties within any any org or any teams that would focus on this? That's a, that's a great question. And it's also something that we focus a lot of our energy on. So with uh, the Parka project, they're basically, the Parka project is kind of divided into two main parts, the, the storage and the API and query engine and so on. This is really just that. This doesn't concern itself with the collection of data. And the interface uh, for this is the PPROF format. This is a kind of an open standard that Google developed uh, that is essentially a representation of stack traces, as I talked about earlier, kind of an optimized representation of stack traces. And because we have this kind of open standard for communication, um, actually anything that can produce PPROF compatible formats can write to the Parka storage. And the Parka agent, the kind of collection piece that uses eBPF, only happens to produce PPROF and then writes that to a Parka server. And the eBPF piece, essentially, this is where we're trying to create as much language support as possible. And we're, we're kind of, we started with native languages. So uh, like Go, C, C++, anything that kind of compiles to native machine code. Because uh, this is pretty much exactly the way that we get uh, memory addresses out of eBPF. So literally the way that code is executed if frame parenters are, are, are present. I don't know how much we want to get into the nitty gritty details, but um, basically 
when code is executed, there are registers that say and that you can use to jump up the stack essentially so that you can kind of figure out which functions uh, were being executed. And if those are present, then this is uh, super, super easy. And you know, the Go compiler by default um, enables those. And like every major company that we've talked to at some point has a dispute whether to include them or not. And pretty much everyone has concluded debugging is much more important than you know, shaving off a little bit of your binary size. So please include your <laughs> debug, <laughs> debug infos in your, in your binaries. But basically, long story short is uh, native code is pretty easy to profile because that's exactly how it's being executed on machines. It gets a little bit trickier with interpreted or like jitted languages like Java. But jitted languages actually are a little bit easier because at the end of the day, they do still produce machine executable code. And so we just need to kind of get that mapping from memory addresses to the symbols somehow out of the, out of the runtime. But all of those do require specific integrations. So that's something that we're working on uh, kind of extending. And there is also a bit of a middle ground. So there is a standard defined in the Linux kernel that says you can write a file to like temp slash, I think it's perf, then the process ID dot map. And this is essentially um, a file where any process can write of itself the mappings from memory address to, to symbol into. And this is useful, for example, for jitted languages. Node.js natively supports this. So all you need to do is add that flag to your Node.js app and we cannot already profile it. But the, the whole point of the Parker project is essentially to, to make everything zero configuration. You shouldn't need to do anything, shouldn't need to change anything about your setup and you should automatically get profiling. That's kind of the philosophy of the Parker agent. You mentioned Parker there a few times. How does Parker relate to, to Comprof? Yeah, I, I, we kind of skipped over, over that part. <laughs> so after, you know, we spent some time at Polar Signals understanding the space, the technology, and working with a couple of first uh, users and customers, we learned a ton and we compiled all of that knowledge um, into the now open source Parka project. And essentially Parka is the evolution of the Conprof project. Uh, there are a lot of things that came out of the Conprof project that influenced how Parka is today. For example, before we went into EVPF, we actually didn't want to concern ourselves with collection of profiles at all. That's why we have the PPROF format as the kind of interface, right? What we did initially was we just scraped PPROF profiles from the Go uh, PPROF endpoints and then used that to write into the storage. So that was part of what kind of came out of the ConProf project and is still part of Parker today. When you were starting the project, was there a lot of debate as to which cute animal you were going to use as the as your logo? Because <laughs> I looked at it and I was like, wait, there's no parka. It feels like it should be the penguin, you know, or puffin. Or <laughs> yeah, actually, this is still kind of in in discussion. I think we just haven't uh, spent enough time on it. I think we all want like a mascot or something. <laughs> um, you know, we've thought about a polar bear, or we've thought about. <laughs> Uh, like a gopher that has a parka on or something. Yeah. Like th there, there are a lot of lot of ideas. Yeah. <laughs> it's the hidden dark side of of any software, right? Or particularly yeah. OSS software is the is the name and then the logo. <laughs> yeah. Gopher and a parka would be awesome. Yeah, the name actually worked out uh, pretty pretty nicely. Like 
you know, we, of course, we spent a little bit of time on the name, but at the end, we also just decided on a name. But like, I think the very first article that was published was like, get your parka or something like that. And someone <laughs> like put a, you know, a header picture of someone in a parka. So yeah, kind of worked out. <laughs> you mentioned eBPF and how you'd moved there for, for performance optimizations, engagement, better performance, basically. Yeah. I haven't really looked at eBPF a lot myself, but the, I understood that the language you compiled it down to, right, the, the byte codes it. It executed were pretty restrictive like you couldn't have for loops and things like so how do you do things like walking the stack in ebpf yeah that's a that's a great question so you basically need to make everything limited if you have a for loop it can't be variable but you can like define an upper bound for example let's say um, for stack traces we just say the stack trace is allowed to have a max of 127 entries and that's what where we'll stop and so that, that's as far as we'll go. But actually, I've come to kind of appreciate this because it means we can actually guarantee the number of instructions that are potentially added as overhead, right? We actually know, like, I forget what the number is right now, but let, let's just put a number on it, right? 10,000 instructions are potentially executed when the eBPF program is called. And we use the perf subsystem for this. And it kind of works on an overflow basis so that when the CPU isn't doing anything, we don't look at the stack trace either. So only when actually time is being spent on the CPU, only then are we potentially adding those 10,000 instructions, just choosing a number there, right? Like, I don't know what it is off the top of my head. No, that's pretty cool. I didn't know, I didn't know you could do that, if I'm honest, like my annuity is showing through. And another thing I remember when I was looking at eBPF, I mean, I was looking at it four or five years ago, right, when it first came out was that it was, you know, the tool chain was pretty restrictive. Like, what are you writing your eBPF scripts in? Yeah, so um, there, there has been a huge amount of, uh, like, innovation and evolution in the space. And I'm by no means an expert, but the kind of newest evolution is revolving around uh, something called BTF, the BPF type format, if I'm <laughs> getting this right. And essentially um, what this does is, uh, like part of the problem of uh, eBPF was you needed to have kernel headers installed and the program would be compiled at at runtime actually, right? Like right. you would also ship a C compiler or something uh, with your eBPF program and it would compile it with the kernel headers on the host. And the BTF support essentially removes this necessity and there's a, an intense amount of complexity involved, but essentially what it does is it replaces the structs with those of the actual host when it's loaded. And so this doesn't happen at compile time anymore, but there's a kind of a meta layer on top that also does like conversions um, for kernel structs so that we can write uh, kind of portable code, compile it once. And this is actually what the entire initiative is called, compile once, run everywhere, core array. Yeah, this is this is actually pretty neat because now we only need to compile it to BPF bytecode and distribute that and uh, like Parker agent is written in Go. So we just embed that using the like native Go functionality for embedding and then we load that program. This does require a relatively new kernel, mm. like 5.2, I believe. But actually everyone who runs on cloud providers, we ha haven't had a problem with this. And it's definitely the future. Sounds like dynamic linking for, for eBPF almost. 
sort of, but specifically for kernel headers, because most of the time that's what we're going to be interacting with, right? Like we're reading something uh, out of a process struct. And so I guess this can, can this tolerate like evolution in those struts in the kernel? Yes, exactly. Oh, very interesting. So was the, was the move to, or not the move, but the prevalence of cloud providers, like the straw that broke the camel's back to where if eBPF has been around for four or five years, then all of a sudden it becomes easier for everyone to use it? Or because it feels like it's like a, a technology that's been around that now all of a sudden becomes important, maybe before where it was a little bit more esoteric. I think it's just like with so many other uh, communities, you know, the tools are evolving, the problem set that we're solving with it is, is evolving, right? Like, I think this is still relatively novel to do this with eBPF as well. And the, the kind of cool thing about eBPF is you can do almost anything with it, right? Like the fundamental things you could already do previously, right? Like you could write kernel modules, but it was incredibly complicated to distribute those um, and load those and so on. And it's kind of just making it easier and easier to execute things kind of as I think someone described it as serverless for kernel, for the kernel, right? Is it Web3? <laughs> I mean, let's not get into that. <laughs> but I think that the kind of possibilities that that opens is kind of a good parallel, right? Because you can write a lot of things with serverless paradigm. And it's similar with eBPF. You can read a whole lot of stuff out of a running Linux kernel. And I think people are still also kind of discovering what's useful and what useful things can be done. So as a, I guess this is a question for you, Tom, as much as Frederick, but as this becomes more prevalent, does this displace any tools that we currently rely on? Or is this something that's purely additive? I mean, I can see this displacing, you know, if you're doing manual profiling right now, which we, we do, right, this, this would kind of simplify that process and democratize it so that it's more accessible. Mm -hmm. I think this, the thing I'm, I'm really keen on with continuous profiling is, is when compared to, say, something like distributed tracing, this is just much easier to adopt, mm. right? This is just, you know, as Frederick said, you drop it in, it should work with most things and more and more things over time. You don't need to change your application. You don't need to instrument it. You don't need to worry about that one service that didn't propagate the context correctly. Like this should work with everything with relatively low overheads. Like I, I can see this being more like logging in terms of popularity than tracing. So would there be a decision point where if you were thinking about implementing distributed tracing or this you might choose continuous profiling instead and just leave tracing aside or are there still cases where you need both i don't think it's an all right like i don't see this displacing distributed tracing it's definitely not the soundbite or, or definitely not going to be the title of this episode <laughs> yeah, but i can see this being an and but i can see like maybe the order in which you do things um shifting with time you know if continuous tracing continues to sorry continuous profiling continues to uh, kind of gain in popularity or you've just invented a new category, continuous tracing. <laughs> <laughs> tracing has always been continuous, but yeah. I mean, Frederick, do you what do you, what do you think? Do you agree? Yeah, this uh, we actually we have a couple of really cool demos, and not just demos, things like workflows that we actually apply ourselves, where we have both. Let me start with that. It's definitely not mutually exclusive. <laughs> uh, they're definitely harmonizing really well together, actually. So something that we've started doing is we put our function names into spans in our distributed traces. And this way we can immediately jump from a distributed trace to continuous profiling data that uh, kind of tells us everything about the CPU time that we've seen spent in this function. And so now, you know, 
typically we find a performance problem with uh, distributed tracing and we see this span was particularly long in this case, right? But why? That's kind of actually the question, right? And we usually then went ahead and started manually profiling, at least before continuous profiling. And we had exactly the problem that continuous profiling solves, which is we never know whether we're going to catch the process at a time when it's actually spending a lot of time in it, right? So just by immediately being able to pull up all the data ever collected about time having been spent in that function is an incredibly powerful workflow. And it's, yeah, totally composes and it's Very not cool. mutually exclusive. So you talked about the overhead on the application that's being profiled. You talked about how easy it is to get it to profile and, and collect all this information. This sounds like it's going to generate a lot of information, you know, and how do you store and analyze that? And what are the, what are the kind of resources and costs, you know, involved in doing so? Essentially, this is the other part of the Parker project, right? The API, the storage, and so on. And to be entirely honest, in a way, we're also still figuring it out. We've definitely gone through several iterations of uh, storages. And, you know, we get better with every iteration. And it's starting to look like a purpose-built columnar store. I think you could call it something like that. In a way, you know, similar to as if you squint, you could call the Prometheus TSDB uh, columnar store. And this is kind of in a similar realm, although we're, we're definitely dealing with higher cardinality, or at least we want to, because we want to be not constricted to, you know, we want to be able to continuously profile CI runs or even serverless executions, things like that. We're very conscious about not having to care about uh, cardinality in any way. So that's why we're spending time on kind of going down this columnar store path. And yeah, this is, it's an, an incredibly complicated problem. And we've, we've kind of gone through, at first we thought, you know, the, the typical performance advice is store something in the way that you're going to use it, right? And so we actually, in the beginning, started storing everything in the like flame graph data structure that we are eventually going to render it into. But the problem was when we then started to merge or compare uh, these, it, it starts to become incredibly costly in terms of not just CPU cycles, but also like in memory allocations we found that actually storing the, the individual stack traces ended up being much cheaper. And so we kind of pivoted towards that direction. And then the other part, other than just, you know, the stack traces and the values connected to those, there's a lot of metadata involved with this function names, file names, line numbers, right? Uh, basically, not as much, but kind of a fraction of the amount of code that is involved. And if we look at, I don't know, Kubernetes, that, that involves millions of lines of code, right? So the amount of metadata definitely shouldn't be underestimated. I think with that, we've kind of figured out how we're going to do it. It's essentially, it's a key value store that we request huge amounts of keys at, uh, simultaneously from. And in a way, we've built kind of hyper-scaled joins in a distributed database just based on key value stores. Very cool. So that part we've worked out pretty well, but the kind of columnar store type value store is definitely something that we're still learning with. Very cool. And so what kind of orders of magnitude are we talking about here? Like if I'm if I'm monitoring, say I've got a couple hundred machines and I'm I'm tracing, you know, let's say they're Kubernetes cluster, 30, 40 pods on each one. 
like say I'm tracing all of my applications, you know, a hundred times a second, am I, you know, am I got to be worried about my network bill or? So the, the network is, is interestingly not, not so bad. It's more about gathering the data and then compressing it in a way that we will still be able to read it back efficiently. It's really, it's a really similar problem space as Prometheus, where a lot of the time is spent or a lot of the resources are spent with memory so that we can keep CPU time low and uh, like disk IOPS low. So I can't really say the amount of resources that this is going to need because this changes almost every day. <laughs> so we, we've gone from like several, like maybe 100 gigabytes now down to maybe 20 gigabytes. But like we have a lot of plans to reduce this even even more. And as I said, it kind of improves almost every day. Nice, nice. I guess this also impacts like how you might make a business out of this, like uh, what you're going to eventually one day bill for and and what your margins will be on that. I know it's always a good topic to ask about kind of how you intend to to build a business around this project. So what are your thoughts in that area? What are you doing at the moment? I think it's kind of the very typical or I, I don't know if it is typical, but I think it is to you because it's essentially the same <laughs> thing that Grafana does. We intend to offer this as a service so that you don't need to worry about anything about this and you can focus on your business, right? Like uh, we take care of storage, we take care of scaling. And, you know, maybe there'll be a couple of features on top that are interesting for enterprise customers. But for sure, the like running this system, it's it's a highly distributed system with that involves, as you said, a lot of data. So it's not a simple system to run. And I think people appreciate if they don't have to. And is that impacting kind of the community adoption of, of Pyra? A Parker, sorry. Pyra is a different project. If it's a complicated distributed system, are you seeing that hampering, you know, people getting started with it? Actually, Parka itself is kind of an, like, you can see it as an analogy to Prometheus. It's like a single statically linked binary that you run on a machine and it scales as much as that uh, machine scales. And then the service that we're running is kind of a distributed system that scales beyond a single machine. I see. So like, a bit like uh, Cortex to Prometheus. Yeah, exactly. And the, the system you've built for Polar Signals, that's not part of the Parker project? Yeah, I think it may be eventually, but I think, as I said, the Parker storage evolves very, very drastically and the distributed storage even more drastically, right? Like mm. we just need that freedom right now to experiment with various different technologies. And I think it would be too confusing on the community to, to make that public right now. No, of course, of course. I'm kind of curious that the community aspect, right? So the last, was it almost two years, two and a half years since the the first issue, right? Or since it was, was released. How has the community's desires for the project either aligned or differed from where you want to drive it, right? Has there been any points where there's been dissonance in that? Or what's that look like? I think, you know, in the very beginning, I wasn't able to spend much time on it. And so that very much reflected itself in the state of the project. So it didn't really get a whole lot of adoption until we did this revamping mm. of like evolving it into the Parker project. As I said, it kind of barely compiled. It had a very poor storage that kind of barely worked. Um, and all of these things are getting a lot better now. I think the most evolution that, that we saw was actually 
through working with Polar Signals on early users and customers and all of that feedback that we got there. I think that was yeah, really the most useful in understanding what people actually need from this kind of thing. Because we had our own ideas because we are users of this system, but things like latency optimizations, right? We thought it was going to be useful for that, but like we're working with e-commerce companies, for example, and for those companies, it's huge, right? Like they actually don't care that much about cost saving in their infrastructure. They care way more that they can increase their conversion rates by having lower latencies. Mm. So that was something that wasn't like saying this now, it sounds incredibly obvious, right? Yeah. But before actually having worked with a customer like that, we weren't so sure. So then what would, what is your ask? You maybe even go into this year of the community, right? Like if that's one of the places where they were able to dispel one of the assumptions that you had, you know, maybe arguably in pursuit of the same end goal, but, but very like hinged on a very different idea. What would be an ask that you would make of the Parker community for 2022? I mean, I think the the biggest ask we always have kind of goes back to what Tom touched on earlier is like, what are the languages that people actually want supported most, right? Like, again, we have an idea and we know the Java ecosystem, for example, is huge. So we're definitely, we're already working on Java support so that you don't need to restart your Java apps at all or anything about your deployment. Right now you need to kind of add a Java agent to be able to profile it. But the whole point is that you don't have to do anything, right? And after that, it's a little fuzzy for us what the truly the next most popular language is. We have the like Stack Overflow. What do they do? They do these like questionnaires once a year, I think, where they figure out what the most popular language is. But is that really the most popular language for those companies that care about optimizing their cloud builds or care about performance, right? Like we don't really know that. So Frederick, let's say I'm bought in right? And I want to adopt this in my company, right? And let's say it's not such an easy example as an e-commerce company that wants to close more sales sort of at any cost. How would you help me advocate to my leadership, to my manager? All of it feels kind of like icky to say, but like help me explain it in a way that they would care that doesn't have to do with the tech. Yeah. I think we essentially have three things that people care about solving with this type of Type of software. The first one is kind of the one that we've touched on a couple of times today already, and it's cost savings, right? Basically, the like if you go to your CFO, the the calculation is simple. If this product costs less than it's going to save us, then it's kind of a no-brainer, right? The Google paper has shown this initially. That was kind of part of the initial inspiration, but we we keep seeing this as well. Simply by having the data. You can actually do something about it. And where does that cost come out of? Like what budget is that getting pulled from? Essentially, it means that you're going to be spending less on your cloud builds, right? Yep. So it's the same team that spends money on the cloud builds as the one that's also spending money on this product. So, so far that we've seen, it becomes a fairly simple uh, conversation to have because everybody wants to save money, right? And especially those that don't necessarily have the expertise to build something like this themselves. A lot of the hyperscalers have built systems like this. As I said, Google even wrote a paper about this, right? Mm -hmm. We know that Facebook has a, has a system like this. Netflix has something kind of similar. I, I've heard from, from people at Twitch, like a lot of companies have built something like this, but especially those companies that are, let's call them more traditional companies that don't necessarily have their background in tech. 
they may not even be capable of building something like this or have no interest, right? But they still have a huge potential gain. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of reason number one, right? Reason number two is what we talked about last, which was increasing conversions. And there's a, when I talk to front-end engineers, they all know about this, but essentially when an interaction is faster than 100 milliseconds, it feels instant to humans. And in in e-commerce, this is a very closely tracked metric because it means the faster their system is, the higher their conversion rates are. And there's a lot of studies about this, that this is actually true. So I won't get into that, but I guess the easy way to say this is if a system is fast, it's more enjoyable to use for us in a way, right? I think everyone can kind of agree with on that. For them, it's not just about saving money, it's about making more money. And then the last one, you can kind of talk about incident response. It falls more closely into the traditional observability use cases where, as I said earlier, we are able to truly say like, what was the code that was being executed at this point in time versus this point in time? And so latency spikes can be debugged like this. Memory spikes can be debugged like this. Oom kills a very classic one that like we've had several calls with like lead engineers and their engineering manager and the lead engineer is like stressed out because they've been chasing this oom kill for several weeks and they just every time they look away they like it it ooms and they they start over again right so kind of anything about avail increasing availability. I don't really like using this word, but like a lot that's often used in this case, which is like reducing mean time to resolution or like basically just how fast can you troubleshoot something? Because as we said earlier, it's complementary to our existing observability tooling. It just allows us to understand different aspects of our running programs. So it's kind of the trifecta, right? So it, you save money, you make more money, and then when things go wrong, <laughs> you get it back up faster. Yeah. You lose less money. You lose less <laughs> money. <laughs> yeah. I like it. Tom, and then I want to ask you, so I'm kind of in, right? But I, none of these decisions <laughs> are mine. What, what's the holdup for you? Like, why isn't this something that we're already doing? Uh, we use we use Comprof internally. Oh. Um, and I think we're not using Parker just because we haven't got around to it yet. <laughs> like, uh, we, we do use it. We don't. I don't think we quite use it everywhere yet. But I know for the big Loki service that we run, um, we're using a lot of Comprof. I know the Tempo team are using it. And and this actually kind of nicely moves us on to the next question. You know, the podcast is called Big Tent. And you talked a little bit earlier about how you've aligned kind of the function names so that you can go from logs to, uh, so you can go from traces to profiles really easily. And that's, you know, that's something really dear to my heart. What other of these kind of associations or experiences or transitions or whatever you want to call them, links uh, are possible with this kind of work. Yeah, I think in a way we can talk about once more, talk about this keynote that we gave at KubeCon, because I think if I'm remembering correctly, one of the things we were saying was that metadata was going to be key for these kind of associations from one type of data to the other, let's say jumping from metrics to continuous profiling, right? And we were incredibly intentional about aligning the data model in Parka as closely as possible with Prometheus so that it nicely integrates with existing setups, right? So we can actually, if, you know, just like with logs, for example, you you kind of do the same uh, with, with Loki, the metrics have the same labeling scheme as continuous profiling data. So it's super simple to jump from 
let's say, a latency metric of one process to the CPU profile of the same process at the same time, right? And the, the query language and everything in the storage engine was specifically designed so that it would, when you query uh, uh, some timestamp, it would choose the closest one to it, right? So that it's actually hopefully aligns best. Yeah, Prometheus style, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for, for, you, for you, this may sound, sound obvious, right? But it's not, <laughs> not, so, not necessarily so obvious. I just think for me, this sounds like good taste. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is, that's what you've done in Parker and, and how you've tried in Polar Signals. There are other projects in this space, right? Um, do you know, you know, who, who else is doing this? What other techniques are they using? So yeah, th this has been definitely uh, really interesting. And in a way, some people get scared by this. I'm actually even more motivated by this. As I said, when I started this, there was really almost no other company doing this. I think now there are like five continuous profiling startups out there, several of the big vendors trying to get into it. So like, I think like Instana has a product for this. Datadog has a product for this. There are several open source projects like Profefe, Pyroscope, and one that's um, actually like technology-wise really close to what we're doing um, called Optimize Cloud. They were uh, recently acquired by Elastic. Um, and they're essentially, at least in the collection part, they're doing something incredibly similar. They're using eBPF to collect this data with incredibly low overhead. Their, their entire backend is closed source, so I really don't know how that works. I assume it's got to be something kind of similar, right? Like most people converge uh, towards similar solutions given enough time. So yeah, but these, these are definitely, it's become a really hot space. And as I said, like for me, this is really encouraging because so many people have left their well-paying day jobs to pursue this opportunity. Right, that there's got to be something there. At least the engineers that left their well-paying jobs were willing to spend, you know, years of their life on this. There are probably some people willing to spend some money on it. <laughs> and I think one of the things I'm also really keen on, you know, when I joined Grafana Labs, oh, four years ago now. Wow, you know, Grafana Labs only had data types for metrics, and now we have data types for logs, for traces, you know, visualizations and experiences for those. Have you given any thought to? you know, a data source for for tracing and, and like a Parker data source. Yeah, that definitely. It's definitely something that we want to do. I think the, the biggest reason why we haven't yet is because it's still so changing so rapidly that I feel like any any additional integration we have right now would be kind of a, a burden um, and would slow us down. But I think once we, and we're starting to settle on some things, but once we do that, I think it's definitely going to be time to have like a, a Grafana plugin for Parker. Yeah. Oh, well, let me know when, you, uh, when you're ready for that because we'd love to help. <laughs> awesome. Sounds good. I've got, I'd, I'm going to change to a different topic if that's all right. The, we talked briefly about the Parker community that's growing around this. And, and it, occurs to me, um, it occurs to me that Parker's a, uh, a new project, right? And so how did you go around kind of building a community? And, and you've been involved in multiple different communities, the Prometheus community, the Kubernetes community. How, what did you learn and what did you do differently with, with the Parker one? Yeah, so I think as with founding Polar Signals, I think I, I wanted to learn from all the past experiences, right? Like with Polar Signals, I'll get to Parker in a second, but with Polar Signals, one of the things that kind of exploded when we announced our funding was our company culture. It kind of went a little bit viral on Twitter, um, and that was kind of heavily inspired by my past experiences at companies. And so we did 
wanted to do exactly the same thing with the open source project. And as you mentioned, I was involved in the Prometheus project and the Kubernetes project and several others. And I wanted to be really intentional about the things, removing all of the, in SRE land, we always call this toil, right? All of the things that doesn't really produce value by doing it manually all the time so that we can focus on actual, actually creating value, right? And so small sounding thing is uh, our documentation, which is kind of templated throughout with versions. So everything in the release process is entirely automated. So when we tag a, a release in on GitHub, that automatically triggers the release pipelines. It automatically publishes the, the change log, which is a manual process in the Prometheus project, for example. It then pushes the container images to a registry. And if and only if the container images have been successfully uploaded, it redeploys the documentation and kind of retemplates everything with the latest version, right? And so this way we like literally the process of doing a new release is creating a git tag and it's like one click on on github and that way we i think we've created i don't know 20 25 releases in the two months that parga had been released and this is only possible because we can truly only focus on producing value right and all of this other stuff is completely automated so that was super intentional and we did spend a lot of time on it, but now we're saving a lot of time on it. So this is just kind of one, one of those learnings. Uh, there are definitely several others, but this is one that I'm personally very excited about because it means I don't have to do boring <laughs> work. <laughs> the, uh, one of the things we, um, we tried really hard when we launched Loki and, and when we launched Tempo was to try and be really open um, and accessible as a development team. Right, so things like uh, like monthly calls for the community and and doing all our development in the open on on GitHub, you know, this is this was one of the things that was very dear to my heart. Right, I love I love that that style of working. Do you do similar things in Parker? Yeah, we have uh, kind of Parker office hours uh, every two weeks. Those are at five p.m. UTC on Tuesdays. So I think it's I think it's next week if I'm not mistaken. But, uh, you know, you can check out uh, the parka.dev website and it'll be under the community section. You can find it there. And yeah, that, exactly. This is, was also one of those things that I, I wanted to be very intentional about. Or also, you know, having a very accessible instant messaging system. We use Discord that kind of is rising in popularity in open source projects. And I just find it a joy to use. Mm. Kind of similar, going back to what we, what we said earlier, it's incredibly high performance and really low in, on resource usage. So it's just, it's a joy to use. Um, and they write a lot of blog posts about how they make this happen, mm. right? They're they're really, really performance conscious company. No, I 100% agree. I love Discord as well. Yeah. No, that's really cool. Would you have, and do you have any advice for anyone who's like, who wants to launch their own open source project and build a community around it? So I think, <laughs> the thing that I learned in my experience is everyone, always craves that kind of instant success with open source projects, mm. right? But I've actually learned that sticking to something and going f with it for the long run, you're just so much more likely to actually produce something useful because you'll get user feedback and something something popular, right? Like mm. uh, I think 
the Conprov project, uh, you know, in the beginning was not very, very well visited. The documentation wasn't particularly good. Just never spent a whole lot of time on it. But still, it grew to, I don't know, 800 stars or something like that, simply because every month or two, I did another commit or something, right? And so it really it really helps to just stick stick with it. As long as you're solving something that you're genuinely interested in, I also don't have a problem with doing that, right? Are there other projects that that you're watching that are they're very similar to Parka that you feel aligned with or that eventually might join forces? I think it's more I think the the projects that do exist in the in the ecosystem do some things fundamentally different. So I don't really see projects merging. Where I do see potential for uh, collaboration is on uh, open standards and wire formats, for example. So we already know about the PPROF open standard that Google created, but it has some shortcomings and it's not, not necessarily created for the continuous profiling world. It does fit the traditional on-demand profiling a little bit better, although it can be done for sure. But I think there is space for for different formats there, and I, I can definitely see the value in projects sharing that, right? And I know it's an awkward question, right? And it's like, you know, what other what other projects? And you're like, there are no other projects. <laughs> There's only <laughs> no, one. No, definitely. And as I said, I, that actually excites me, right? Like yeah. competition, I think is a good thing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think even Tom, you know, in our world, like Thanos and Cortex, and and the places where that that merged and diverged and you know intertwined, and I think it made both projects better. I think it did too. Yeah, yeah. we took a load of influence in kind of Cortex one point four era from Thanos, and and Thanos uses our query scheduler and our testing framework. Like these two projects are better because of that competition. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. So wrap up question now. What's uh, What's next? What's next for you, Frederick? What's next for continuous profiling? What's next for Parker? What's next for Polar Signals? What's going to happen? Yeah, um, I mean, we're uh, eagerly working on, you know, getting our, our product uh, out to GA so that everybody can enjoy using it. Hopefully that's going, ha- going to happen sometime in uh, 2022. We plan for it at least. <laughs> I said it publicly now. <laughs> Is it, did you say it here first? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> you heard it here first. I think our race is to get this blog post edited and out before you get your project to GM. <laughs> yeah, that, that's definitely a, a big goal for us. Um, and then, of course, you know, increase. I, I think we, we have yet to truly see the vision come together by actually supporting, let's say, the majority of the popular language platforms, right? Because that's truly what will give us that system-wide profiling experience where you drop the agent onto your Kubernetes cluster and everything automatically starts to get profiled in a meaningful way, right? Like we can can already capture stack traces from a Java uh, process, right? But it looks kind of trashy right now. Mm. But the, the idea being that no matter what you start profiling, everything has meaning, right? And that we can actually merge all of this data together and see what is the number one stack trace using CPU resources in our infrastructure? Very cool. Very cool. And and finally, those 2019 predictions you made on stage at KubeCon, any of them you'd like to revisit? Any of them you'd like to slightly amend? We can do that? Um, <laughs> yeah, we can do that. Oh, boy. I think I'm, I'm actually kind of sticking to them. If one thing I were to add, I think 
And we're kind of already seeing this, so I don't know how much of a prediction this is. <laughs> I think like Colner stores are going to rise in popularity much more. Like we see ClickHouse becoming kind of popular, right? Mm. But I think um, there are a range of other ones that I'm really excited about. For example, Influx IOX mm. looks incredibly promising. They're, they're doing some really exciting things. And ClickHouse has been around for for ages, right? It's almost it almost reinforces your point saying, you know, stay the course and just keep building, you know, building things that are strong. Yeah. I think they just raised an incredibly huge, I don't know, series A, series B or something like that. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of a testament that they're solving something worth solving. And as you said, they've been around for a very long time and a lot of people weren't paying attention then. Mm -hmm. No, I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for spending your afternoon with us, Frederick. My pleasure. Pleasure to have you on the, on the podcast. Thank you so much, Frederick. Thank you. Sadly, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Tom Wilkie and our special guest, Frederick Branchik. I'm Matt Tutis Toback, and I want to thank you for listening. You'll see one team Matt soon. Uh, we'll see you next time on Grafana's Big Ten. You know what we didn't do? We have a regular we have a regular feature, Frederick, that we like to do every week. <laughs> I had that thought. <laughs> yeah, and we didn't do it this week, and uh, it's dashboard of the week. So, Frederick, like uh, you know, it's, it's this is designed for podcasts. This um, regular feature. Yeah. What What's your dashboard of the week? I think the the one dashboard that I actually look at every week is our like web traffic to see <laughs> you know what has long tail of our social media engagements and stuff like that. And could you just describe how that dashboard looks like, like visually, the colors it uses, the shapes, these kind of things? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's really not all that fancy. Are you serious <laughs> right now or not? No, <laughs> <Okay>. not remotely. <laughs> <laughs>